grab your Bible and make your way to Acts chapter 2 today. Acts chapter 2. If you are visiting with us, we're so glad that you're with us. We are just kind of, you can tell, starting in the book of Acts, covering a lot of early church history. And since Christ has ascended, now's when the Spirit comes, and it is a major event we're going to see today how the prophetic and command of Jesus from chapter 1, where he says, you will be my witnesses, begins to take place. Because he says, first of all, in Jerusalem. And that's really what we get to see at the beginning of chapter 2. Just to kind of catch us up, if you've missed the last week or so, the disciples, apostles, had just installed Matthias as the twelfth apostle. Twelve was an important number. We talked about that last week. They were, um, they made that decision based on what they knew of the word of God and based on um, the conviction of what they knew was right. They're now um, back in Jerusalem, or they're still in Jerusalem, waiting, right? They're, they're being obedient, they're waiting, and we talked last week about how that's a really difficult thing for us to do, is just to wait. Um, the Greek word for Pentecost here means the 50th day. That's what Pentecost day means. Uh, it refers to the seventh week after the Passover. So Pentecost was one of those big Israel... Uh, if, on the Israelite calendar, it was one of those big feasts that they would come back to Jerusalem, many of them would, and it represented the completion of the harvest after seven weeks of labor. And so all of the, the apostles, and uh, it's listed 120 other believers, or 120 together, they're there. They're in community. They're waiting. They're praying. They're remembering Everything that Jesus had said and did, they're studying scripture and they're anticipating the coming of the spirit. He said that this would happen, Jesus did. And so they're waiting. They knew that it would happen, but they didn't know exactly what it would look like. They didn't know exactly when it would happen. Jesus had that funny way of of explaining things where there wasn't a whole lot of hard dates and numbers and those sorts of things. He just said, wait, didn't tell him how long. So they're waiting. It's now the day of Pentecost and something big happens. Let's read. We're just going to get through the first 13 verses today. Up until Peter's sermon, which actually explains some of what we find in the first 13 verses, but that's okay. We'll read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. And then we'll pray. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound... The multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear, each, each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Lord, help us to continue as we started. And we started in the Christian faith through the Spirit, by the Spirit, by faith. Help us now to continue the same way, relying on his power and leading in our lives, including as we study this, this text this morning, expand our understanding, open our eyes, and maybe most importantly, Lord, break our hearts with your word today as you see fit in Christ's name. Amen. So they didn't have to wait very long, did they? The days come. Pentecost is here. And Jesus' words are being fulfilled. But it isn't just the words of Jesus that are being fulfilled here. We need to understand that. Peter's going to explain this in his sermon that we'll talk about next week. He's going to explain that it's actually the promise of God himself, of Yahweh God. He's going to point out this um, the miraculous speaking of languages that the prophet Joel had prophesied would happen. Years and years and years prior. Now, there's something under the surface here. There's what I'm kind of thinking as a a major underlying shift for the Jews that's taking place. And it might not be quite so obvious for us modern day believers today. So I want to, as we go this morning, I want to kind of try to help us fill in some of the blanks. Um, The church was being established here. And in the process of doing this, God provides what we can only explain as miraculous signs to help the Jewish nation understand what's going on. That's what we're seeing here. Three things specifically stand out today, all beginning with S, so we can help hopefully understand them. They're in your notes this morning. The first sign is is the sound. So we've got the sound of the mighty rushing wind that comes in and fills the place. We've got sight. We see tongues as of fire appear over each of the believers that are gathered together there. And then speech. The, the, these believers go and they speak in a language that they did not know how to previously speak in. And in order to really see what I think Luke is wanting to emphasize here, let's make some ties back to the Old Testament. Okay? Since Pentecost was planned for the end of the grain harvest, that meant thousands and thousands of Jews from as what Luke describes as every, all, all the ends of the earth or every nation under heaven, these kinds of Jews are back in town. They're back in Jerusalem for Pentecost all over the known world. So as the disciples are in the upper room waiting and then all of this is happening, guess that's what's going on in the city around them. 
I realize it's a little different in our context because we live out in Pike County, many of us, and there's not a city center that a lot of people spend a lot of time in. But in Jerusalem, they're in an upper room with the city pressed in very close around them, and there's lots and lots of extra people around, specifically Jews celebrating the Pentecost. So there's cultures, there's languages that aren't normally there that are there. In that time, verse 5 explains this. And the first thing that we hear about in verse 2, that's miraculous, is this sound that came from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. This, The way that Luke describes it, it's not like a normal wind that would blow. Okay, this isn't a storm brewing and sweeping through town. This was from heaven vertical coming down into the place and filling it up. This was a different kind of wind. In fact, the Old Testament and New Testament alike, they both use for the word wind, it's the same word for the word spirit or um, breath. And so if you think about it in that context, you can think of some other instances of this. Old Testament use, think of in creation, the breath of the Lord going out over the waters of the newly created earth in Genesis chapter 1. When God creates Adam, what does he do to him? He breathes the breath of life. This is the same word that's used here, for, that Luke uses. I think of Ezekiel chapter 37 when he's looking out over this valley of bones. It's the same word, breathe, God breathes life into them. Okay, so it's the same idea At this point in the story, though, none of these apostles and disciples and and followers of Jesus see anything. They just hear it. They hear the sound as of a mighty rushing wind. And so there was no denying something special was happening. The presence of God was coming down. That's why Luke describes it as coming from heaven. The presence of God was in the place But if there was any doubt, there's a second sign that you see and you remember. The tongues as of fire that appear on on their heads. This is is an important uh, part of what Luke is saying. Because if the sound of this wind that came from heaven wasn't enough to convince these people of the presence of God, this surely would. Because both of these things draw from Old Testament stories. Fire was another significant theme in the Old Testament. Think of when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, a pillar of fire not only leads the way, but keeps the enemy at bay. It keeps them safe, provides heat and light. Think of uh, Abraham at the burning bush. It doesn't burn up, but there's fire there. Then God finds Abraham on Mount Sinai and he comes with wind and an earthquake and with fire and he uses this momentous occasion in Israelite history to give the people the law. So fire was a part of these major events in Israelite history. The presence of God comes and later on in the Old Testament we see fire over the temple revealing his presence there. Seen as a pillar of fire. And so here in Acts chapter 2, where are the believers? Are they in a temple? They're not. Are they out in the wilderness fleeing from the Egyptians? They're not. Where are they? 
They're in an upper room, all gathered together. So what's going on? What's the point that Luke is trying to make here? I think this is what that, that major shift that's happening reveals. It's this. God doesn't dwell within the walls of the tabernacle anymore. His presence isn't only found in the temple. What's happening here and the shift that I want you to see is that the Spirit of God has come to take up residence in the new temple. Jesus' body, the body of Christ, his people, the church. And so to be even more specific, the Holy Spirit now rests on the people of God, on his people. It's not in a tabernacle anymore. Each little Christian is a mobile temple for the Spirit of God. That's what the tongues of fire are getting at. Hebrews chapter 13 is really clear. It says God is a consuming fire. And as such, his people are consumed by him. They belong completely to him. Fire is usually used positively in scripture, and it's used to symbolize purification. Uh, oftentimes like precious metal being heated up over a fire and, and refined in that sense. It's a positive thing, heat is. Obviously when you're needing a fire to cook or to stay warm, fire is a positive thing. But more than once in the Old Testament, God showed his presence and his power by sending a fire to consume an offering. You think about the prophets of Baal with Elijah on Mount Carmel. And it's, it's in a drought even, and Elijah tells them to pour buckets of water on the wood and the fire. And then when he, when he calls on God, God consumes it all in a moment. Showing his presence, showing his power. Here at Pentecost, God's doing the same thing. He's sending fire from heaven to show his presence and power again. But this time, it's descending on living sacrifices. His people. The Lord is still preparing and purifying a temple for his dwelling. And the tongues of fire prove that he would now live in each believer like he lived in the temple, in the tabernacle. And this momentous shift is that the new temple promised by the prophets is the very people who make up his body, the church. And that's the story that we're going to see in the book of Acts. We're going to see the story of two temples. The temple of God where his people dwell, in his people, I should say. And then we're going to see the, the, the physical temple that was being held onto and defended against the people of God. But from Old Testament scriptures, we know that God's plan was always to use the family of Abraham, right? He promised him. Your descendants are going to be as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky. It was going to come through Abraham. They were going to bring peace and justice to the world. But what was the problem that we found in the book of Nehemiah? They were scattered, right? The city was destroyed. They weren't all in one place. They weren't one big happy family anymore. They were separated. They were apart. They were in exile. The Jewish nation had been scattered, and, and so now pockets of them dwell all over. But for Pentecost, again, they're back in Jerusalem. They're back in one place and so the Israelite nation is represented and unified in this moment in Jerusalem. 
this coming of the and filling of the Holy Spirit was so essential for the work of the early church that Jesus said, pointed this out last week from John 16, Jesus actually said it was better for him that he go so that the comforter could come and take his place. Now, maybe you're like me and you've wished before that Jesus was here in person so that I could talk to him so that I could look at him, so that I could ask him these questions that I had big, uh, that I needed big answers for. But the design of the Father and of the Son was that the Spirit would come to be with Christians in a way that Jesus says is actually better than if he were here with us just by himself. And I, th- I think it's entirely possible for us as Christians to become so preoccupied with what we don't have that we miss what we do have. We're so, so preoccupied with longing for Jesus in the flesh that we miss the Spirit of God given to us in this Holy Spirit that dwells within us. This gift, blessing, guarantee, the power of the Holy Spirit is in us, which Jesus actually says is better. So the believers who are gathered together, they hear the sound of the Spirit as the mighty rushing wind. They see these um, uh, the evidence of the tongues of fire on the head of each Christian there. And this indwelling and empowering of the Spirit doesn't just allow them to stay together in that place. What happens next? Well, we see them go out. Now, we don't know exactly what this looked like. Maybe they all started speaking other languages in this, in this upper room and the sound of it spilled over and people started hearing it and looking around for it. We're not totally sure. But this was part of the plan of God with all of these representatives of the Israelite nation in Pentecost that day. And now you've got the Spirit being poured out and it's revealed through these languages being spoken. Before we get into that too much, take just a moment, though, and consider the last time most of these people would have been in Jerusalem together. Remember, we said that Pentecost came after what other feast? Passover. What happened in Jerusalem at Passover? Jesus is betrayed, put on a sham trial, and crucified. And... All the while, you've got this angry mob of probably many of these same people saying, crucify him. Those are the same people that are here in the city again. And now, they're hearing something different. They may not have been present for Jesus' resurrection bodily. Jesus has already ascended at this, at this point. Now they've waited, the time has come, Pentecost is here, and this is the third sign that we read about in, in Acts 2, that the speech of the, of the believers, they were speaking in languages that they had not known or spoken in before. In response to being filled with the Spirit, these Christians began to speak this way, as the Spirit gave them utterance, the text says. So I think Luke is giving us a bit of insight, and even maybe a play on words here, when he describes the fire as tongues, and then these these Christians go out and speak in tongues so that the people who are gathered there hear clearly in their language what God wants them to hear. Old commentator G. Campbell Morgan reminds us that the Apostle James says that our tongues can be set on fire either by heaven or by hell. 
So he says that words that come from our tongues can preserve life or they can save life or they can destroy it. And these tongues of fire here in Acts chapter 2 are to symbolize the Spirit's presence and power in saving life. Because many hear what's going on and respond to salvation in just a few moments. Now, if you can bind wind and fire, what do you get? Well, it can be awfully dangerous, right? You get wildfires, and we've seen some of those things happening. You get a blaze. When you've got fire and you've got wind pushing it, you've got something incredible going on. And again, it can be, it can be detrimental if not kept in check. And yet here we see something incredible going on. We've got this, this wind filling the place. We've got the tongues of fire. And now it's pushing these Christians out of the church doors, if you will, into where the people are. This is a, a watershed day for the nation of Israel, for the church, for the world. This is a big moment. Um, just kind of an aside, I, I was reading and one commenter, commenter um, pointed out that the tower, at the Tower of Babel, God divided language and confused it because mankind's eyes were fixed on themselves, right? We can build a tower to heaven. We can withstand another flood if God brings one. We don't need him. We'll build this tower, And so God confuses their languages. Rebellion was at the core there. But now at Pentecost, they're all together in one accord. God's people are submitting themselves to the rule of their Savior and Lord. And God unifies his people by giving them the ability to speak in languages that they'd never known before. So there's a great reversal in that that I think is really neat. At the Tower of Babel, language is divided Because of mankind's arrogance. Here at Pentecost, language is united for the glory of God. It's helpful to note, too, that these believers in the upper room, they didn't just suddenly become Christians when the Spirit was poured out on them in this way. They were already believers. They already loved Jesus. They were already studying scriptures together, meeting together, praying, having things in common. But now the Spirit comes upon them in a special way to empower them for this task of of taking the gospel to those in Jerusalem who needed to hear it in that moment. Now, we look at this story, and none of us would say, if we believe that this is truth, none of us would say that nothing miraculous happened. We would all say, yes, something incredible happened here. But I want to suggest that the most incredible thing that happens here is actually at the beginning of verse 4, and not at the end of verse 4. At the end of verse 4, they start speaking in tongues, which is incredible. But I don't think that's the most miraculous thing that happens. I think the most miraculous thing is that these these believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is where the ability to speak in tongues comes from. This is where any power that the Spirit would bestow comes from. It comes from Him, from the Spirit. Nobody's speaking in another language this day if they're not first filled with the Holy Spirit. So that, I think, is the most incredible part of this verse, of this text. John Stott says, before Christ sent the church into the world, he, spent the, he sent the Spirit into the church. 
I like that. I think we need to keep this in, in the right order. Before Christ sent the church into the world, he sent the Spirit into the church. Now, if we consider the text and the words that are used, the, the word filled occurs multiple times in the book of Acts. Um, it re- refers most of the time to being filled with the Spirit, but a couple of times it's referred to being filled with confusion, uh, one time even conf- filled with jealousy, it literally just means, like the cup right here with Peter, it, it literally just means to fill up completely. Like till you're spilling over, to fill up. But the intent is that being filled with something, and that something controls or influence you, influences you. And the point that I want to make by pointing that out is this. Whatever fills a person is what controls that person. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be controlled by the Spirit. If you're filled with the world, you're going to be controlled by the world. If you're filled with fleshly desires for the things of this world, that's what you're controlled by. Well, when the Holy Spirit came and filled these believers, they immediately began to do something that only the Spirit would allow them to do, and that was to glorify God. It was seen in the speaking and hearing of tongues and performing of miracles, as we'll see as we go. But miraculously speaking another language and performing miracles, I don't think are the end purpose of these apostles and believers being filled with the Spirit. It was to glorify God. That's what they immediately start to do. Look at verse 11. The conclusion of those who heard what they were saying was this, we hear them telling in our own tongues, languages, the mighty works of God. Now, we don't know what these, uh, for certain, what these mighty works were that they were telling about in, in these languages, but I don't think that they're talking about the work of God in creation. I don't think they're talking about God's work in bringing the Israelite nation to where they were in that day. Now, those were incredible works of God, don't get me wrong. I don't think that's what the people were hearing these believers say in in their own languages. If you look, if you know Peter's sermon, verse 39, we know that these are, I would think, at least, that these mighty works refer to what God has done through Christ to salvation for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I think that's what these people were hearing in their own language. These mighty works were the work of God through Jesus Christ. What had, what had just happened? What had these people just seen for themselves? A resurrected Savior. That's, I think, what was being spoken in other languages here. If you do a study in the New Testament of what it means when it says that somebody is filled with the Spirit... You'll see the same pattern in every case. It's this. Believers are filled by the Spirit in order to tell of God's works through Christ and to glorify His name. If you look at every sermon in the book of Acts, as we'll get through, if you're thinking about this, in every sermon in the book of Acts, the the pinnacle of the message is not how bad Paul was. It was how great Jesus is in every sermon. 
We'll see it next week in Peter's sermon. But that's what it meant to be filled with the Spirit. So if someone asks, or if you're wondering, am I filled with the Spirit? Here's the criteria I think that we can answer that question with. Being filled with the Spirit. Well, do you speak often and effectively about Jesus? Because if you don't, the Spirit has not filled you yet. But if you do, if this is pouring out of your life, you can say with affirmation, I'm filled with the Spirit, or that person is filled with the Spirit. It's not by whether they speak in another language or perform a bunch of miracles or anything like that. The question really is, do they testify about Jesus Christ and glorify God? That's what it means according to to what we see here of being filled with the Spirit. This is what the Spirit gave them to do. So the emphasis of Pentecost is about people who are surrendering to the Spirit and who bear witness of God's work through Jesus. Those are the mighty works that are being heard in these other languages, other languages. And, and the out of towners that are there, not normally, but are there now and hear this, they get it. They're amazed by it. To, to some degree, they get it. They are amazed by it. But they realize it's the mighty works of God being spoken. And look at verse 7. They hear this, they're amazed, but they say, wait a second. The people that are, are say, speaking in these languages and tongues, they're Galileans. Now again, being modern day Christians, we don't exactly know what that means, but Galileans in that day were country bumpkins. Okay? I realize some of us could be described the same way, but that's what they were, they were known as they, they were, they were uneducated. They were uncultured. Uh, history says that they often slurred their speech. And so even their, their dialect, they could speak the same language, but it was kind of like sometimes when you go down to the deep South of Missouri, they're still speaking English, but it's kind of hard to hear what they're saying sometimes. But these people, they recognized them. They said, these people are all Galileans. They knew they didn't have high education. They, these people were blue-collar laborers. Jesus called his disciples from Galilee. And what were many of them? Fishermen. Uneducated, oftentimes uneducated fishermen. But they hear these uncultured and uneducated people speaking clearly in a variety of languages, their own languages, and the culmination of their speaking is all the same. They're telling the mighty works of God. Now, some of you can identify with this because you've been there, but if you're in an international airport, if you're in an international airport, you're going to hear all kinds of languages, both being spoken by people with you over the loudspeaker you're going to hear, and oftentimes it's all at the same time. It can be, I imagine, a very disorienting situation. It can be a very confusing time. But if you're there and you hear your native language being spoken, what happens? Well, your ears perk up a little bit, right? Oh, they're speaking my language. I hear it. I understand it. Chances are, if these people continue speaking it and they're some of the only ones, maybe... 
you're going to kind of gravitate towards them, go strike up a conversation with them, at least go and kind of listen in more on what they have to say. I imagine it was the same in Jerusalem this day. I imagine that as the spirit-filled followers of Jesus began speaking these truths about him, the people who understood the language, their ears would perk up and they'd gravitate towards these speakers and form little groups, listeners, Bible studies, maybe we'll say. And in those groups, they're clearly hearing about the works of God. Now, verse 5, Luke says that these were devout men from every nation. What he means here, I think, is just he means religious people. These were Jews, yes, but they were held captive by the law, trapped by it, and they were seeking righteousness through works of their own hands, not by Jesus Christ. And and certainly this was the uh, example that the Pharisees gave to them. So we could say that these were Jews by heritage, but not by heart. And they're there all together in Jerusalem, and they hear Peter's convicting sermon We'll get to next week. And what happens? They hear this sermon and 3,000 of them are saved in a day. They repent of their sins. They're baptized soon after. But they're here. And in verse 12, it says that they're amazed. They're perplexed. They don't understand what's going on fully. And they, they kind of went down through this logical list. Well, maybe it's because of this. Maybe this person just got a good education. Maybe it's this. They went through all these lists of things that it might be and they came up empty. Nope. There's no reasonable explanation for what we're, what's happening here. We don't get it. How could this be? In fact, they asked the question in verse 12, what does this mean? They're hearing the works of God in their own language. Their interest is uh, pricked and they say, what does this mean? They were curious. And I think that question that they're asking actually prepares them for what's coming in Peter's sermon. What does this mean? And Peter by and through the spirit gets up and he starts speaking and he says, well, that's a great question. Let me tell you what it means. But they say, what does this mean? Some of them were curious. They wanted an answer, and yet verse 13 tells us that some of them didn't. Others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Now, we don't exactly know who these other people were. Were they uh, other Jews who just did not care to know what was going on? Were they other people outside of the Jewish nation who were mocking? We're not sure. But whoever these other people were, they made the fatal mistake of attributing heavenly things to earthly circumstances and explanations. They took what God said was incredible and tried to to make commonplace. They're just drunk, they said. That's really what's going on. That's the only logical explanation we can come up with. So that must be the case. They're just drunk. The book of Acts is a record of a bunch of mighty conversions, but also it's a record of fierce opposition to preaching the gospel. And it just gets worse and worse and worse as you go. More and more opposition, more and more persecution. Even miracles will not convince those who do not want to submit their lives to the authority of Jesus. And we see it here. Now I think the difference between those who were amazed and curious 
and those who explained it away and made fun of them is just hearts that were moved by the Holy Spirit. There are plenty of people still now who hear about the mighty works of God through Jesus Christ and mock and ridicule and refuse, right? But there are still those who are waiting, who are curious, who have this question when they hear, they say, what does it mean? What are you talking about? And so because there are still those who are waiting to hear the message that the church has to share, church, we have to share it. We must share it. And we must share it with passion, with hope, and in the power of the Spirit. Because in our own power, we will convince no one. If I wasn't convinced that the Holy Spirit is going to tug on heartstrings and change lives, I would not get up to preach. Because I recognize I can't convince anyone. I'm not that good of a speaker. But if the Spirit of God is speaking, now we're on to something. If this power of the Spirit is working through you in your workplaces, in your homes, now we're on to something. By the Spirit, God calls and rescues those who believe. And so as Mike read this morning, are we going with that message? A pastor in the early 1900s named Vance Havner I want to quote from him. It's in your notes. It's kind of a long quote, so you can read along with me. But I think this is too helpful not to read all of. It's this. It's not what's done for God that counts, but rather what is done by him. The work of his spirit through our yielded wills, programs, propaganda, pep, personnel. These are not enough. There must be power. God's work must be done by God's people, God's way. The Quakers got their name from the fact that they trembled under the power of the Spirit. At least their faith shook them. Too many of us today are shaky about what we believe, but not shaken by what we believe. Too many people assemble at God's house who don't really believe in the power of God. Having begun in the Spirit, we live in the flesh. Never has the church had more wire stretched with less power in it. All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Sad to say, we seem not even to know that we have not the spirit in power. If the spirit ceased his work, many church members would never know the difference. The meaning of Pentecost is God equipping His church with the power of His Spirit so that He will be glorified among the nations. That's what's going on here in Jerusalem at Pentecost. It was to equip His church with the power of His Spirit so that we would be His witnesses to all the nations, resulting in His eternal glory. I hope you caught the emphasis I was giving there. Let's think through some applications as we close because there are some for us today. These two are in your notes. You can follow along. The first one is just this question. Is my focus on God's glory in all things? If we can agree that that was the point of of what was happening here at Pentecost, that God would be glorified in the preaching of the mighty works of Jesus, 
Is that my focus? Is my focus on God's glory in all things? Or am I so preoccupied with my own stuff that I care very little about how my life impacts how others view Jesus? Or am I more concerned with the glory of God? And this spills over into every area of life. The words that you speak, the movies that you watch, the music that you listen to, the people that you hang out with, the jobs that you take, all of these things is my focus on the glory of God. Second question to apply, is my passion that the nations would glorify God through the truth of the gospel? Or do my thoughts about missions and the gospel end before I even walk out my front door in the morning? Do I care? Is that my passion that others would hear and glorify God through the truth of the gospel? Number three, is my daily life deliberately dependent on the Holy Spirit? This may be a big one for many of us here. Could I go through a week's time in life and not even know if he was with me or not? That's a hard question to ask. Are we depending on him deliberately enough to know if we've forgotten or if, if, we, if we don't know that's the case for us that day? The question that uh, Vance Havner asked, he, or he said, if the Spirit ceased his work, many church members would never know the difference. And I've heard other guys like David Platt and Francis Chan ask a similar questions about how, how many years could our churches roll on without the need for the Spirit at all? Is my daily life deliberately dependent on the Holy Spirit? Do I lean on Him for purity, for sanctification, and for power to obey the commands that God has given me? Or do I try to do it all in my own strength and ability? Number four, is my daily desire to bear witness to Christ to those who are lost and dying? See, because I'm convinced that if we're deliberately dependent on the Spirit and filled up by Him, we cannot help but speak about the mighty works of God through Jesus Christ to non-believers around us. It's that idea of spilling over. If we're filled, we're spilling over onto those next to us. The power of the Spirit isn't given to the believers just to make them happy, though that is a distinct effect. Joy is part of what comes with salvation But it's not just to make us happy. The power of the Spirit is given to make believers holy so that their life and words bring glory to God as they bear witness to His saving grace. That's what the power of the Spirit does in your heart and in your life, brothers and sisters, to make you holy and happy. I think that's how we apply the meaning of Pentecost today. I want to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon in thinking of the early believers in that upper room with the wind and the fire and the speaking of tongues and the people around who are hearing all of this. Charles Spurgeon says this, Oh, that you would send the the wind and the fire. You will do this when we are all of one accord, all believing all expecting, all prepared by prayer. Lord, bring us to this waiting state. Let's pray together.
Lord, we are waiting on you. We're not waiting, though, in inactivity. Because that's just laziness. Lord, we're waiting in, in hopeful expectation and anticipation. And while we wait, we're doing the things that you have called us to do. Just like these early believers did. In the upper room, they were praying together. They were encouraging one another with the scriptures and through prayer. They were speaking truth to one another, making decisions based on your word. Lord, may we go and do the same. And yet now we have the incredible blessing of the Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, come make your work clear in our lives. Come and dispel unbelief and, and coldness of heart that oftentimes affects our relationship with God. Holy Spirit, reveal to us through Scripture how much our Savior Jesus loved us. You're the same Spirit now who dwelt in Him while He was on the earth that you now dwell in us. You know Jesus better than anyone else knows Him. So draw us to His feet Holy Spirit, that we might once more fall before him in love and adoration and that his love for us and our love for him might spill over into the people around us, that we might go and in your power speak truth, speak the mighty works of God to them that they might hear and repent and be saved. Lord, it is your power and your spirit and your words that make the difference. So as we go, Lord, help us not to shy away from speaking truth because we think we aren't good enough or we can't speak it well enough. Lord, no. You have given each Christian your spirit. They are your temple where your spirit dwells. And so they have your power to go and to speak boldly to others the truth of Jesus I pray that we would speak that to unbelievers that we come in contact with out of love for them, Lord. Not out of superiority, but out of humility, recognizing that we too were once lost. But now, by Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, through the Spirit, we've been found. We thank You that Your Spirit still goes before us, comforts us, gives us words to speak, interprets for us, intercedes for us, Lord. I, I pray that we would rely on His Spirit more in the coming days than maybe we ever have before. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would be poured out on this group of believers. Not so that we would boast in anything of ourselves, in any name here on earth, but only in the name of Jesus. But only in and for the reason of communicating truth to a lost and dying world. Lord, we don't know how many days are left but we know that they are short. And so I pray that you would motivate your people here, maybe more than ever before, to go out and to speak the mighty works of, of God to their neighbor, that we might see many saved for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.